0: From when I was hurt on the hill, I got taken down in a sled, I was in the ski patrol at the bottom, then an ambulance to the hospital. All that time I was talking to people. And there are actually some funny stories because I was like kind of a jerk to people, I think. I was like yelling at people asking for pain meds because right. I was in pain. And was just, she was like, you're going to get some soon. And I uh, apparently said to my mom, don't lie to me, mom.
1: <laughs> this is Taking Flight, a show about people redefining disability by challenging the world we live in. I'm Perry Larock, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about the enduring identity of the athlete. Regardless of the circumstances with Kelly Brush. After a devastating and a rare crash in a downhill skiing race, Kelly learned she was paralyzed from the waist down. As an innate athlete with a competitive spirit, she found the motivation to overcome her newfound reality through sports. Shortly thereafter, she founded the Kelly Brush Foundation to help introduce others to adaptive sports and offset the insane cost of the equipment through individual grants. So one of the things you made me think about a time when we were at a pool where I saw you guys and you were with your husband and I would describe and I've seen you uh, get out of the car and bring your kids into daycare and it was at the pool that day where Zeke was doing something or like was dealing with your kids a little bit, but was also helping you get into the pool. And it was like, he was just kind of, it was almost like a dance. Like he was just, (laughs) he was putting one leg over, he was talking to your kids, he was grabbing (laughs) something else, he was getting the, And then you got in the pool and you swam. It was just almost like you guys are just like this well-oiled machine of a unit. You know, talk about Zeke and, you know, how the learning curve for him and you guys met after your injury or before or before actually
0: yeah you know I my story is unique in a few different ways but but one of the things that I was really lucky for is I got hurt when I was 19 Zeke and I were in college I was a sophomore in college and we'd been dating for about a year before I got hurt. So I took a semester off of school when to go to rehab and everything. I was only a week into the semester when I got hurt. He actually did that too. So he took the same semester off. He was at Middlebury with me. Um, and he came out to rehab. So he learned a ton He learned all about, you know, like everything, how I do everything in my life. Um, And so he's been a huge support for me since the very, very beginning, which you're right. We are a well oiled machine. We just sort of like know how to do things. He knows how to help me when he needs to help when he doesn't. And it works really well. So I feel really lucky that we have that and that he's been there for so long that he knows everything. So he's been I mean, he's just a rock in so many ways. But he's he's a great dad and a great, he's able to balance that really well with, you know, this is the thing about my injury is I still need help, right? Like I I don't do everything on my own. There's still things that I need support with stairs. You know, somebody helps me up the stairs and that's great. You know, there are things when I go into the pool, um, I can get myself into the pool. He helps me getting out. You know, there's different stuff like that, that I still use help. And I think that's mine. I think it's important to be able to know how to ask for help and when to ask for help. And I'm just really lucky that I have somebody who's there for me, who, who helps me at those times, but he actually is probably my biggest uh, I don't know what the best word is, but he pushes me a lot. You know, I'll ask for help and he'll say, you don't need help with that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I'm like, come on. And he's like, no, 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 you got to try. We always tell our our four-year-old, can you try first before asking for help? And so now, uh, now he does the same thing to me. He, he jokingly says, can you try? (laughs) Yeah. And I say, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) but he, you know, he has been, in a lot of different ways, been been a huge
1: support system for me. So now when Emily asks me to take the garbage out, I can be like, can you try? <laughs>
0: <laughs> he, he takes the compost out because he has to walk behind our garage to take right, it. Okay.
1: So, All right. so, All right. so we
0: have our division of labor, that's okay. Right,
1: right. <laughs> You know, the one thing I didn't know, we were up north with some friends and I was talking about this interview and I was like, I was in a ski accident. And they were like, well, what kind of ski race? And I was like, well, I don't even actually I don't know anything prior to that. So you were at Middlebury or what was what were you doing?
0: Yeah, so you know, ski racing was a huge part of my life. I grew up skiing. I grew up ski racing, and when I started racing, when I was seven, I raced at Stowe first when I was young, and then I went over to Sugarbush at I went to the Green Mountain Valley School there, which was a ski academy, and then I went. I wanted to race in college. That was really my goal and my dream, and so I went to Middlebury, where it's a Division three school, but but actually Division one for skiing. So it's you know one of the best in the country for skiing. So I was really excited to race for them. And so I was on the ski team there and was racing in Massachusetts at the Williams College Carnival, uh, which is what they're called. The races in college are called carnivals. And I was skiing in the GS. It was the Giant Slalom race. And uh, I fell about halfway down and somehow I got spun around backwards. I don't know what happened. But the last thing I remember is going down backwards uh, thinking I was going to hit the next gate. And then uh, that's the last thing I remember. What happened was I actually sort of got like my edges caught in a weird way after I was sliding down backwards and it like catapulted me off the trail. And I hit a lift tower and broke my back and have a spinal cord injury from that. Oh man. I was one of those people that actually really didn't fall very often at all. Um, I was quite balanced and stable all the time, which was a good thing, especially racing in college. That was a really big bonus, um, the way that college racing worked. So I was not really accustomed to it because I didn't fall that often. That was actually my first college race that I ever fell. But yeah, I mean, falling happens. There's there's fencing that's along the side of the trails that it's there to help to protect people from going into uh, you know, the woods or man-made objects like lift towers. Uh, that fencing just happened to not be protecting that lift tower that I went into.
1: That's crazy. So where was that?
0: So that was at Jiminy Peak, um, which is in Western Massachusetts, where I got hurt.
1: Okay. And then you said, so you obviously you know, got knocked out. And so you don't remember after falling backwards. And then what's the next memory you have after that?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. I actually didn't like get knocked out. If I did, it was super quick. And by the time I came to people were there. So I actually think that I was with it. It was just one of those weird, like body things that makes you not remember because you're in such pain. Um, So it's interesting because I was like conversant with people around me throughout you know from when i was hurt on the hill i got taken down in a sled i was in the ski patrol at the bottom then an ambulance to the hospital all that time i was talking to people there are actually some funny stories because i was like kind of a jerk to people i think i was like yelling at people asking for pain meds because right. i was in pain Yeah, <laughs> and uh, apparently said to my mom don't lie to me mom
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> she said she was like you're gonna get some soon and i told her not to lie to me because apparently i knew she was getting lying
1: here's kelly's husband zeke who's been with her through it all so we had the backstory you know you guys were already dating in middlebury and then were you at the ski race when she got injured Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. yes um in college men and women race together women go first uh men second so she had she had gone down for her run you know, when you ski race, you strip down into, into spandex suits. And so somebody takes all the jackets and, and pants and everything down to the finish for people that just race. And I had a load for our team, for the Middlebury women's team. And I sort of skied around and, and got onto the course part way. And somebody was like, hey, Kelly crashed pretty hard. And my initial thought was, she's fine, like, brush it off. Uh, and I sort of slid down and, and got there when, you know, ski patrol was was over her. And it was obviously pretty concerning her parents showed up shortly afterwards and you know her parents stayed and they kind of encouraged me to 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 move on you know she got in the sled got in the ambulance i was sort of there she got loaded into the ambulance went up took my run went back down went to the hospital during lunch came back took my second run went down and went back to the hospital and you know we were there for a
1: little while All right. So you were in the ambulance being rude to your mom. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Where were we? You were being rude to your mom. (laughs) So nice. I think you probably had an excuse at that moment, you know, is my guess, is you were forgiven easily.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My back was really messed up, unfortunately. So uh, it was, it was, I had a reason to be in a lot of pain at that time.
1: Did they know how bad it was at the moment?
0: I think it was pretty clear to other people. So, What's interesting for me is I never had a moment where I said, oh my gosh, I can't feel my legs, I'm paralyzed. That came a lot slower, and I think a lot of it was because I was in so much pain. There was just so much else for me to think about and focus on that I wasn't realizing that I wasn't feeling you know, the lower half of my body.
2: So she went into like a 10-hour surgery mid-afternoon that day, went, you know, went till late at night, and I think the doctors gave Kelly's family and I was still there an update early the next morning. And that was like a very unlikely she'll walk again. Um, uh, that, we got that talk. But, but Kelly was sort of in shock right after the injury from the pain and the trauma and everything, and then they you know, drugged her up pretty well. She was on a, a pretty solid morphine drip for a while. So she was out of it for a good 48, 72 hours, had sort of, you know, didn't know her name. And remember, put yourself in my shoes. I, you know Kelly was 19, I was 20. I was the 20 year old college boyfriend kind of hanging around in the emergency room. I knew her family but not you know we weren't buddies. I was sort of invited into some, not to other conversations. I kind of knew what was going on. I was the conduit for the rest of the information for the rest of the team. but uh, I didn't get all the same information, but I was there for that that next morning, you know sit down saying it's unlikely she'll she'll walk again.
0: So my last memory is of, of going down backwards, thinking I was going to hit the next gate. Um, and then my next real memory after that was actually being in the emergency room. Um, and I have a couple little snapshot memories of little things there, but nothing really sustained uh, for a long period. I have a memory of them asking if I could feel my where they were touching, and I was getting all mad at them because... I couldn't, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And I have a memory right before going into surgery because I had surgery that afternoon um, and just being really thirsty and asking for water. And they told me I couldn't have it. Um, But my next real memory after my fall is waking up after surgery. I was in the intensive care unit, I had a tube down my throat to help me breathe. um, And I was so I couldn't talk, and I was motioning to my family who was standing all around me, like, What happened? Um, And I had no idea what had gone on, what was happening. And they basically just had to tell me everything. You fell skiing, um, you broke your back. Um, And I don't even remember, even at that moment, I don't remember them telling me you're paralyzed and you're not going to walk again or anything like that. I don't have a memory of this realization moment. It was just slow over the next few days that I started to realize sort of what the situation was. And what was going on? And so I spent five days in the ICU, and then another two weeks in the hospital there in Massachusetts. And then I went out to Colorado to Craig Hospital, which is a rehab that um, specializes in spinal cord injuries. Um, And I was there for two months.
1: Was it just panic? I mean, like, I mean, I can imagine you know a breathing tube alone. You know what I mean? Um, Was it was it just a sense of panic and fear, or were you medicated enough that it? helped or is it just do you still have that sense of panic that was there
0: You know, quite honestly, it wasn't even that much panic. I just had certain things that were so uncomfortable. I think I was so unaccustomed to pain because I had never really had any big injuries before this that I just was so uncomfortable in certain places. Like my back really, really hurt. That was the biggest thing when I first, you know, after my accident. Um, And then when I woke up and I was laying in that hospital bed and I had that tube down my throat, the biggest thing I kept trying to do, and we still sort of laughed about this is I was trying to like pull my arms were strapped down um so that I wouldn't pull the tube out so I was like pinned down to the bed and so I was trying to get my family to massage my neck I had a really sore neck muscle and that's what was causing me the most discomfort at that time and it must have just been from the way that I was laying in surgery. I, it was 10 hours of surgery, so it was a long time. Um, and it must have just been from that. But like, that's what I was most focused on, was like, will someone please just massage my neck because it really hurts. And I couldn't move my arm um, to do it because I was all strapped down.
1: Well, so she said that you were pretty crucial to her recovery in Colorado? Yeah, yeah, she's like she's like. Well, Zeke was there. I was like, oh, he was. She's like, yeah, he was there. You took some time off college and just went.
2: I don't remember that being that difficult. Of a a decision or b not agonizing over it that much. I had friends at CU in Boulder. It was still winter in Colorado. It was good to be there with Kelly, and she would have. Kelly's parents are great. She would have gone nuts if it was just her parents. So yeah, uh, right. I know that was meaningful for her.
1: So I guess, you know, this is one of those questions that people think about. I, tr- I try to ask at least a couple of questions that if I'm curious about it, I'm assuming other people are. It- it's what is the process for coming to understand what happened and facing the future? I mean, you've learned that you are, are paralyzed and most likely never going to walk again. W- uh, you know, how does that work in your mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody sort of goes through it differently in a different way. And especially because I didn't have that sort of like moment on the hill where most people do, they have their accident and they realize right away, like, Oh my gosh, I can't stand up. Um, because I didn't, it was really different for me. Um, but for me, it was really sort of this slow process of realizing, okay, I'm paralyzed. I'm probably not going to walk again. What else does that mean? What does it mean that I'm not going to be able to do? And For a lot of that time, there's just a lot of hope of like, okay, I'm paralyzed. My spinal cord wasn't severed though. So I'm going to walk again. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to get better. Um, And I think honestly, that was really what I focused on in the beginning was not like I'm paralyzed and never going to walk again. It was more that I'm going to get better. Um, I think it was that was for the first you know several days or the first couple of weeks. Once I got to rehab, where you actually learn how to live in a wheelchair and learn like how to take care of yourself and how to do all of this stuff that you do on a normal basis, like get dressed and that sort of thing. Those really basic things. Then I started to really think about what my life was going to be like and what it was. And how it was going to be different being in a wheelchair or not. Um, And for me, quite honestly, the thing that was so impactful and so important in that recovery was sports. Um, And being able, realizing that I could still be an athlete. That really, really changed my perspective on what my life was going to look like going forward.
1: And was was that early on in the rehab where just the people you were working with were starting to introduce you to some of the adaptive sports right away? Or is it just you were aware of them and started thinking about it?
0: Um, It was more that they were introducing them to me because for me in the beginning, you know, I thought I was never going to be able to be an athlete again. I thought that that part of my life was gone, which was a huge part of my life and, you know, how I felt like I was defined and that I thought was taken away from me. I was never going to be able to ski again or play soccer or you know, do anything outside that's fun that I used to love to do. Um, And once I was in rehab and the people around me started to realize that that's really what I love to do, um, and they got to know me a little bit, then as I got less acutely hurt, so I was able to do more. Because in the beginning, I had this huge brace on so you could hardly move and all that to try to keep my um, back stabilized and everything. But once I got through that period, then they were able to introduce sports to me and show me what I was still capable of and what I could still do. And it was actually in rehab that I actually was able to try a hand cycle for the first time, which is a bike that you use with your arms. Um, And that was probably the biggest turning point because I was out on it, on the roads, I felt the wind in my hair, you know, my heart beating fast, all of that, just like, all right, okay, I can still be myself, I can be an athlete, yeah, I'm good. Um, this is really
1: fun and great. I I would be depressed. I mean, was there, I mean, you didn't say that at all, which I was kind of like, was there this moment of like sadness and depression or did you just, I mean, knowing that you are an upbeat and obviously an inspirational person, did that resilience carry you through it? And you were just like, I'm going to be up about this the whole time. Or was there that time where you were like, this is the worst thing in the whole world and... Yeah,
0: and, and and what the heck? Um,
1: I mean, I don't even know what to say because it's you know, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where you said you've never even hurt that much to go from never being hurt that much to suddenly like broken back can't walk, um, and then you're out on a bike smiling and happy. I'm not trying to find the sad part of your story at all. I'm just curious because I I don't know how I I think I'd be pretty pissed off and sad.
0: <laughs> you know, that's the thing that's pretty wild about this injury for me is i wasn't i didn't have that period of being really sad and really down and depressed um i think there was a lot that went into that and there's a lot of reasons why um but you know ultimately i think i was really set up well just because of my personality and who i am that i just generally am pretty positive and optimistic and so when i had this accident i s- went to okay i'm paralyzed now what, what am I going to do next? Rather than being really sad about what I am, what, what I lost and what I'm missing. Um, and ultimately, you know, I say this a lot and I don't know if people believe me, but I really believe it. 99% of the things that I want to do, I can still do. I just do them a little bit differently. And so, you know, that was my outlook from the beginning. Um, you know, like, sure. I am paralyzed now, but like, I've, wheel instead of walk and whatever, who cares? And I have people who can help me up the stairs if I can't go up the stairs. And, um, you know, there was, there was a lot that set me up for success too. I had a really supportive family. I had a really supportive group of friends. Um, I had a really supportive group around me. Generally the ski racing community was huge, um, in stepping up after my accident and really supporting me, um, as well as the Middlebury community, you know, Middlebury is a small place. And when I had my accident, it was like big news on campus. And I had so many people reach out. I had friends all over the place. People came and visited me out in rehab. You know, it was just like, it felt like nothing changed and everybody was there for me. And we were just going to do the same things and everybody was going to help me find a way to do it. So I think that was all really, really helpful in allowing me to still feel like myself and just like, okay, now I'm in a wheelchair, but like, how can I get back to school?
1: So what was the first adaptive sport you got really into?
0: uh the first adaptive sports I got I got really into was probably hand cycling um because it's so easy to do um you don't really have to learn it it's just a bike so all you have to know how to do is shifting um but there's no like balance with it it's a three-wheeled bike so you're sitting down or the one that I use now you kind of like almost lay flat so that's what I got into I got one right when I got home um and I was able to do that which was really nice to be able to get me out of the house and. and and feel like I was getting, you know, a workout and all that. And then the next winter I got I started skiing, which was my favorite sport from the beginning and uh something I really wanted to do, really important to me to get back out on the hill um and be a part of the ski team the same way that I was at Middlebury before where all my friends were and I wanted to be a part of that. I didn't necessarily care to race, um but I wanted to be part of that culture and be on the hill with them and so that was my goal. I was like, okay, I'm going to ski again and let's see what happens. So in the beginning, the learning process was really hard. It was a totally different sport. I thought like, oh, I'm a good skier before yeah. I'll be able to pick it up. He's like, no, it did not correlate at all. Um, so it was really hard in the beginning. But now the way that I ski now um, is exactly the same. It's one of the few sports that's so equal to people who aren't doing it adaptive because there's gravity involved, right? So like biking, I can have people come bike with me, but since I'm using a hand cycle and I'm using my arms to go up hills, I'm going so much slower up hills than a biker using their legs that it doesn't work that well to bike with somebody else. But for skiing, we take the chairlift up and then we all ski using the same gravity going downhill. And so it's really, really similar. And we're able to ski all the same trails. Um, We do all the same stuff. We go in for hot chocolate. You know, we do all that. So it's really the same as if if I didn't use a monoski. Right. But at the beginning, it was really hard to learn.
1: Okay. So you got into sports right away. I'm assuming that that's where, as you were saying, that's kind of like a big moment for you to realize that you could still be sort of your identity was still intact. And then you had an idea to continue to do this for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So when did the Kelly Brush Foundation then, where did that come out of?
0: Yeah, I actually came up with the idea of the Kelly Brush Foundation right when I was in rehab. So it was, you know, within the first couple of months after I got hurt. And for me, I was sitting there and saw how important sports were for me and how impactful that was for me when I learned about sports and how much that sort of changed my outlook on what I could do and who I could still be. At the same time, though, I realized how expensive they were. This equipment is so specialized and the market is so small that it's really, really expensive to get into. And these are people who already have a higher cost of living because of having a spinal cord injury. So I was sitting there thinking like, what can I do with this? What good can I do? And I thought, you know, I want to help other people so that anybody who wants to get into sports after having a spinal cord injury can do that. And that, you know, finances are not the reason they can't.
1: So, you know, give us an overview of the Kelly Brush Foundation. What kind of stuff you guys do? I'm assuming the scope has gotten a bit broader since you first conceptualized it. And
0: yeah, well, you know, what's actually really interesting is that our mission has almost entirely stayed the same, which actually I think is really cool because that means we came up with a really good idea right in the beginning um, and we've stuck with it. How we execute on that mission certainly has changed and broadened. So the biggest thing that we do and our biggest grant program is called the Active Fund, which provides adaptive sports equipment to people with spinal cord injuries. So people can apply to us, or whatever piece of equipment they want, and we can help support them um, in purchasing that. That we started right from the very first year that we started the Kelly Brush Foundation, and that's continued through today. Um, But the other things that we do is we just, we focus in a lot of ways on just how to get people with spinal cord injuries more involved in adaptive sports. You know, for me and for so many others with a spinal cord injury, getting into adaptive sports allows you to realize not just that you can be an athlete, but It brings out so much more for people. So it allows people to have more confidence. It allows people to socialize more. It shows people that they can both be active, but also participate more in society. So get a job, you know, have friends, have a family. Um, These are all things that seem so small, but are real hurdles that people face when they have a spinal cord injury and things that all of a sudden you feel like I can't do any of this stuff. Adaptive sports really can change your perspective on that
1: so give me an idea of some of the um equipment that you guys have granted but two years ago I was at the thing at um, arts riot yeah I got to try some things out or at least sit in it and I was like amazed. I mean, they were like moonlanders. you know what I mean? they were really cool. The mountain bike, especially so. Yeah. And I didn't even, you know, and even hearing some of the speakers, it just seemed like there was a lot more out there than I think most of us are aware of.
0: Yeah, I know. It's really cool. So the stuff that that is out there and the, the grants that we typically give a lot of hand cycles, which is like I said, our bikes, Mono skis, which help people get up on the mountain and go skiing. Mountain bikes is a hugely growing sport, both for able-bodied, but also for the disabled community, because it gets you out into the woods and gets you off the road. And we're giving a lot of grants for that. Um, The other ones that we do a lot of are sport wheelchairs. So there's things like basketball and tennis and rugby are really big sports that we give a lot of grants for. Those are really great because their team sports. So it brings people together. Um, it allows people to have that camaraderie together. And it's really wonderful to, you know, allow people to have their own equipment to be able to participate in that there's lots of sort of like smaller sports so we've given away scuba equipment we've given away horseback riding equipment things that allow people to do these sports whatever it is to get them active and you know outside and allow them to be whoever they want to be and do whatever they want to do so we have it pretty broad for what people can apply for
1: what are the i mean i'm assuming you get a lot of thank yous so what are the you know beyond just thank you what are what are the reactions i mean anybody you know sort of get the chair and have it be a, a life-changing moment for them or, um, you know, get involved in a sport where they hadn't before where, you know, unlike you kind of having the positive attitude the whole time, it's sort of, that was the moment that it changed them?
0: hmm uh, Yeah, the best time is when we get those responses from people who were giving grants to who said, I cannot tell you how important this is for me to allow me to get back out with my family, to allow me to participate in, uh, you know, something I never thought that I would be able to do. Um, some of the ones that I love the most are, are people getting back out with their families. There's a, there was one woman who we gave a grant to for a hand cycle. And she said, you know, she applied to us and said, I never thought that I could be active and I used my spinal cord injury as my excuse. But I have two little boys and all they want to do is go ride around the neighborhood. And we helped her buy a hand cycle and she got out and she could ride with her boys. And it was life changing, not just for her, but for her kids too, that they saw their mom as being able to participate and do whatever she wanted and not have her spinal cord injury limit her. And then there's the, you know, for her, she in the first like six months, she lost like 50 pounds. And I think she started applying to jobs and actually decided she wanted to be employed after that Um, before she was just at home. And, you know, it was just so life changing for her. Um, We've had a few kids that we help. Obviously, there are fewer kids with spinal cord injuries, but the ones that we do is so impactful. And, you know, we hear these stories from them saying things like, you know, my, my peers at school always looked at me as the kid in the wheelchair. And now I was able to get a bike that I could be part of, or a pushroom wheelchair, actually, which is you can be part of the track team. And now they saw me as a teammate. And and they were really excited for me as I competed right alongside of them. Um, and just the the interactions with peers and the, the benefit that not only from the students, you know, from the person with a spinal cord injury, but also from their peers. And the difference that that makes is huge in so many people's lives. So it's really, really awesome to hear, you know, the impact that these grants have.
1: Right. One of the things that, that's been a sort of a theme across these conversations has, you know, because I've talked to a lot of people with all different kinds of disabilities. And it's sort of like I don't view myself as having a disability. It's sort of the way the world was built gets in my way. Um and you said that. You said 99% of what I can do is just fine. And then you're like, but if there are stairs, you know, then someone can help me up them. But like Stairs are man-made, like there are ramps and elevators. What's your experience with that? And and then you brought up the kids too, which made me wonder were we still in having barriers to these kids being involved and included? And do you still kind of have to overcome some of that societal stuff?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It really depends who's around and who's advocating for For uh, anybody, Um, so I think there's a huge advocacy part of all of this. Um, That's part of what we're trying to do at the Kelly Brush Foundation is advocate for active lifestyles for so many reasons, not just for the sake of being active, right? But there's a lot that's set up in our way. The world is not designed to, you know figure out a way to make it work. We have to do that. So you're right. Stairs are there and they're a barrier. And I, for one, feel like, okay, we can overcome that and we can figure that out. That often takes people who are strong and willing to do that with me. But there's a lot of people who are, if we ask, and if there are people that, that are willing to do that. For kids in particular, there's a lot that's changed in schools, but there's a lot of barriers still. Um, And again, there's a lot that has to do with advocacy and who's around that child to help advocate for them so that they can participate in gym class with their peers, because they should be able to. There's no reason that a spinal cord injury should limit that. And so you know, the way that I approach my spinal cord injury is there's not anything that should stop me. I can do everything. I just need to figure out how to do it. Um, Not everybody is wired that way. And so there's the ability to be able to help that person to be able to see the benefit of what they can do and focus on that and focus on the things that they can control, I think is so important.
1: What's the most frustrating thing about using a wheelchair? I mean, in terms of those daily life skills, like the one thing they were like, ah... Um, Snow. Snow. Okay. Yeah.
0: Snow is so annoying. You know, going through snow in my manual wheelchair is not easy no matter what. And uh, trying to get through it to get to work, like, you know, even if there's like three inches, it gets all over my wheels. And then I drag that all through my work. And, uh, you know, and then it's all wet and it's annoying. And so then I sit there in the entryway to try to clean it off. Like, it's just such a pain. So <laughs> that's one of those things that's like, Totally manageable and overcomable. But, you know, if the plow doesn't get there before I get there, like I'm going through snow um, and it just sort of sucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What's, you know, interesting because, you know, you obviously had your kids after the injury. And so they've only known a mom who uses a wheelchair. What is their perspective on all of it? I mean, yeah. At what point did they realize that not all moms use wheelchairs?
0: (laughs) I don't know if they know that still. (laughs) Um, Well, so my youngest is just about two. So she doesn't really know. Um, And my oldest is, is four and a half, almost five. So she definitely understands. And we talk about it. And I've always been open with her about it and sort of try to explain things as they come up. Because in a lot of ways... She has never really thought about it. And it's usually her peers who say something that then makes her think, like, oh yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I don't know why my mom does that that way or whatever. But we talk about it and she, you know, she'll say things like, Yeah, well, you can't do that because you have to use your wheelchair. And I'm like, True, but how do we, you know? And I always try to reframe it, but she definitely will like say things offhand that are you know, in response to my chair, I try to get on the floor and do like stretching and stuff like that. She loves to do yoga. And so she does yoga moves. And so there's ones that she does that I can't do because they're standing. Um, And so it was actually just this morning, we were doing that. And she was talking about well, how can you do it differently? And I was like, well, if I'm sitting, I can do it this way. And so we just try to think about it differently. And as she gets older, have her understand it in the way that she can in how I am compared to how other people are and why I do certain things a little bit differently.
1: It seems like it could be just overall, just so many great lessons for them just to understand having that part of their life to look at how to overcome challenges.
0: Yeah. And how to just reframe challenges too. You know, she's a little bit too young to really understand that nuance of it, I think. But just the seeing me do it all the time as she gets older and really starts to internalize that, I think that'll be a really important one for her and how she thinks about what happens to her and how she can reframe that a little bit.
1: Does it feel normal to you now?
2: Yeah, it has the whole time. Um, yeah. It's the same relationship dynamic. It's the same, you know, it's the same everything just with one more variable. And, and we've right. all got that extra variable, big or small, you know. Right. And uh, I think, you know, the word you used of normalcy is is the word we kind of struggle with because, you know, at the Kelly Brush Foundation, you know, we're using Kelly as an example of, you know, overcoming adversity, of resilience of all of these sort of exceptional words. But the goal at the end of the day is just normalcy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of a, a double edged sword again, where, you know, we want to say, like, we just want people to be normal, you know, this isn't this isn't that exceptional. But then you do sort of have to recognize that, for some people, it does seem exceptional. And you watch that moment. And and um, you've never seen that before. So it seems exceptional to you. And that's, uh, you know, that just gets back to resetting our expectations, our being able body community or people that haven't had uh, experience or an introduction to somebody with that kind of an injury, just resetting expectations and, and normalcy Mm -hmm. is exceptional because you don't expect it. Right. With her example, with what we do, how do we sort of shift the expectation um, of what is, of, of what is exceptional, right? And it is, it does be normalcy. It's not winning Paralympic gold medals. It's not being the first paraplegic to do X, Right. You know, she's exceptional in that she has a career. She's got two kids uh, and she drops them off at daycare. Yeah. And uh, that's the, the message we try to have as, mu- as much as possible. Now, we, we celebrate people's Paralympic medals, too, because it's cool yeah. and we love them in our community. But that's not a realistic expectation for a lot of people. There's a big controversy conversation. I don't know what you want to call it in the, in the spinal cord injury community. And it's probably true in a lot of the disability communities that, that you interact with you know, the use of the word inspiration, you're an inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. Um, some right. people bristle at it and say, no, yeah. I'm a human out living my life. Get over it. Right. And, and then, you know, there's the reluctant acceptance of it with the perspective that if I'm seen as inspirational to you today, hopefully the next person won't be right. Cause, cause right. you started to get that expectation and uh, that's part of the process.
1: You go from a person who doesn't have any sort of disability and you're kind of looking out at the world and then suddenly you're in a wheelchair and everyone is now treating you somewhat differently. I'm assuming, or at least maybe that's what you're worried about. You know, how do you deal with that? Where does that happen? What's your response to it?
0: I'm in a wheelchair. I look different than other people. I get that. And that's fine, right? People are going to look at me and and look more than they will at somebody who's standing. That's okay. I feel in a lot of ways... I'm a representative of both myself, but also the spinal cord injury community and the wheelchair community and the disabled community generally. Um, And what I always try to do is represent me and that community as best I can. I remember early on in my injury, somebody said, kill them with kindness. And so that's what I always try to do. I smile at people. I try to be as open and as welcoming as possible. If kids, you know, I'm like passing somebody in the grocery store and kids say something because usually it's the kids who say something, not the adults. I always try to say like, yeah, this is my wheelchair, you know, and, and talk to them about it and tell them it's okay because you're right you know, parents see me and their kids say something and parents kind of get uncomfortable because we're not really supposed to ask people about that stuff and we're not supposed to stare. Um, We're not supposed to do all these things. But at the same time, that's, I want people to do that. I want people to look and to understand and to try to know, you know, who I am and why I'm like this, because the more people can see that and the more that they can see, you know, who I am and what I'm doing is is different, but also normal, the more normal it'll seem the next time they see somebody like this. Um, And the more normal it is to see somebody with a disability doing all of those things like bringing your kids to daycare, because I am probably the only one there who has a physical disability that you can see. Um, But there's plenty of other people who have disabilities that you can't see. Uh, But hopefully the next time, you know, a mom or a dad who has a disability brings their kids, then it's just like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. I remember when I used to do that and um you know let's normalize this more but i love the you know i i so much prefer people to ask questions than to wonder and not ask questions and kids are so great about that because they just ask don't think twice about it um, and it's so wonderful they get that there's a lot that i do that i don't need help with um, there's a lot that people really want to help me with um, and I'm always happy to take that help, but it's things like, you know, I'm about to go in the door of something and I can open every door just fine. I do it all day, every day. Um, but somebody comes like sprinting from behind me to come open the door for me. Um, and if you're there, open the door for me. I really appreciate that, but don't feel like you need to like come sprinting from across the, you know, parking lot to open the door for
1: me. Cause I got it. I got it too.
0: Um, those are my little things, but even that I always like, that's a really nice effort and I really appreciate right.
1: it, but it's still annoying.
0: Yeah. But it's still like, you really didn't need to do that.
1: Yeah. Right. And here's the question of, so what would be helpful? I mean, there's always this bit of awkwardness or not sureing if you're going to be patronizing around. It's just a lot easier if, if we're chatting that worse that I would take, you know, I would sit down so we can look eye to eye. So you don't have to strain your neck. I mean, different mm-hmm. pieces like that. Is that something that you like and you wish people would do more of? Are there other pieces that people can think about when they know someone who's using a wheelchair?
0: I love it when people sit down to talk to me. When I do... So for my foundation, we do lots of different events. um, and, And a bunch of them are like cocktail parties that are in the evening. And so people are up and standing. And my neck at the end of the night is so sore like it hurts. And so for somebody to sit and sit with me, so they're talking eye to eye is so nice and so helpful just because it's uncomfortable for me to look up all the time. But yeah, that's one of those things. That's actually a really, really small thing that goes a long way. You know, sit, talk eye to eye, be on my level. I think the more people can ask questions when they have them, but then also not harp on that is really helpful and really important. I have lots of friends that every once in a while will be like, hey, you know, I was thinking of something, you know, these are some of my best friends in the world. And they're like, how do you do, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, that's a really good question. Here's how I do it. Or, you know, I was thinking about you the other day, because, you know, this situation came up, like, how does that happen? So I love that. I love that people ask questions, especially like even people who are around me a lot, and who know me really well. So I think that that's a really important part of it. Or somebody who's just getting to know me, ask the question, and then we can talk about that and move on. Um, so I, I really think that that's, that that's important and helpful.
1: That's awesome. Where do you stand on uh, fate? I mean, I didn't ask Kelly this question, but it, it, I was thinking more about it just in terms of Kelly Brush Foundation is phenomenal and she's changed so many lives. I just wonder, you know... There's always that question people have of like, was this what I was destined to do? Or is this what, what she was destined for?
2: I don't think Kelly's
1: that dramatic
2: and certainly not that self-promotional, right? There's, there's a yeah. certain amount of, I don't know, I'm trying to find the, the word without a negative connotation, but self-absorption or self-something uh, mm-hmm. to, sort of, to assert that. I think what she gets a lot, and I think she would admit, is she was a really good person for this injury to happen to. Uh, that may be about as dramatic in terms of fate as she gets. And that's just because she's, she's level. She's even keel. She's got a great perspective on uh, what's important to her things. She can and can't accomplish. She's realistic. And um, I, I think she's, also had the support network around a to to put her in a place where that allowed her to thrive that's not true for everybody for sure but also that can help that was there for her in you know realizing a vision of how to help others having the perspective that what she went through is not so easy for others either without her attitude or or without the support she had so i think the the most the most dramatic we've gotten has certainly been say this is this is the recognition that she was a really good person for this injury uh which is funny
1: cuz that kind of sucks right, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, right <laughs> which right, it wasn't right. <laughs> but the
2: opportunities she's had i mean she she she's happy now she would have been happy without the injury and and she's made thousands of other people happier so yeah, it's, uh, if that's how you define fate then then yeah there's a, there's a hand in it I'll really give you a look into Zeke and Kelly's marriage or relationship or something. But I'm typically the one that's like, let's go do this, Kelly, right? And she, and she'll be like, oh, I don't know. It's not necessarily like, no, like, well, whatever. And I'll, I'll push her out of her comfort zone a little bit, which is a function of, you know, her being even keel. A couple of years man, man, this is five years ago, I guess. We were going to go up to Tuckerman's Ravine, which is something i had done every year as a kid living in Maine. Hike up Tuckerman's Ravine and, you know, it's a two and a half mile hike in. 2.2 is is sort of an easy road and then the last three or four tenths is kind of a more gnarly hike and we you know she got her monoski at the bottom and we sled dogged 10 guys and and hauled her up and it, you know that's not an ada thing right like no ramp is gonna get you there there's not <laughs> this isn't like you can't legislate that type of outdoor experience and i think with the, the times we really get excited at the kelly rush foundation are you know both the mom getting out on the bike around the neighborhood with her kids for the first time post-injury um those are like the bread and butter that we just love you know but also the people that that figure out how to get way into the backcountry on a new rig with and without assistance because that does open up both of those are really important examples and kelly straddles those really well she is the she is the mom endearing with her kids work professional and she'll step out of her comfort zone and do some fun things that, that, you know, people wouldn't expect of her or wouldn't expect of somebody with the injury. And uh, I think both those are, those are equally important in terms of getting people an expectation of uh, what people with that injury are like. Uh, and it's, it's as diverse as, as anybody in the able-bodied community. How'd you do? Great great there was a point at which we couldn't push her up the head wall anymore it did get a little steep but we <laughs> got her up the head wall as far as we
1: uh yeah. as far as we possibly could and she did great Okay, so the science, I just yeah. do you keep up on it? I mean, where that's gotta be weird.
0: It is. Honestly, no. I don't follow it all that much. In terms of like the cure. So in the very beginning, I, I mentioned this before, you know, right in the beginning, you're like, I'm gonna beat this, I'm gonna be the exception, I'm gonna get better, all of that. It just didn't pan out for me. There was no amount of like the harder I work, the more likely I am to get function in return. Like that just isn't how it works. But also the first further out I get, it's just like, and by the further out I mean like by a few months after my injury. You know, I'm focusing on my life now. I just don't want to focus all the time on the cure and how I can get better. So that's not what I'm focused on. My life is great the way it is, but yeah, I would do it. There's plenty of things that would be easier to not have a spinal cord injury, you know, even just health wise, right? That would be great. But that's not my focus and that's not something that I dwell on. But I still when it's out there when I when I see it. It's 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 cool to see. It's exciting.
1: It seems like that could be a slippery slope of hope almost. Like if you if you're too much focused on it, then you're always disappointed or you're setting yourself up to be disappointed for a long time versus focusing on life and living it the way you're living it and appreciating it.
0: Totally. There's so much good that's going on right now. That's what I want to focus on. I don't need to dwell on those other things that you know, sure, there's research going on and there's really cool research. And it's gonna, I, I believe that one day in my life, there'll be some sort of cure, whether it's available to me or just for, you know, an acute spinal cord injury right after you're injured, who knows? But I'd rather focus on the good in my life right now and have that be what I spend my time thinking about, not the
1: cure. Thanks to Kelly Brosh for taking the time to have a conversation with me today. For more information about the Kelly Brush Foundation, go to kellybrushfoundation.org. To hear this podcast and other amazing conversations with people redefining disability, don't forget to subscribe to Taking Flight wherever you get your podcasts. For some fun bonus material and some other goodies, head to perrylarac.com. This podcast was produced by Auto Vita, sound engineering by Sean Henninger and Greg Williams, theme music by my buddy Andrew Parker Renga, Check out more of his music at APRmusic.com. Today's show also features music from film score composer Sean Henninger from the band Memory, spelled with two Ys. For more of his music, visit MemoryMusic.com or NeonMoonStudios.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Manfield Hall, a residential college support program for students on the autism spectrum in Vermont, Wisconsin, and Oregon, and Virtual Hall, providing virtual academic and social support for students attending college across the world. On next week's episode, Drew Maxwell, Executive Director of the Innovation Center at the Milwaukee Institute for Art and Design.
2: And I remember I bought a Fantastic Four comic and I went outside and sat there, ate my push-up and saw this giant rock guy running around punching stuff and a dude that could stretch.
1: And I was like, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. Art. So people do this for a job. That's it. I found it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm Perry Rock. See you next time for